and uh, it is great to be with you all. As I was talking to Scott and his wife a moment ago, four girls, I don't even know how to begin to process that. Uh, four sons, my wife, bless her heart, was condemned to live in a male dormitory for about 20 years. And, uh, you know, I came home one day, true story. She met me at the front door and she said, let me tell you something. I am convinced that boys will do things a dog won't do. Now, I don't know <laughs> what they did, but I uh, strongly suspect there's probably a lot of truth in that. And so uh, four boys, God was gracious. We now have five grand girls, so I do get to experience all of that estrogen, all that emotion, how one moment they're just so happy, the next moment the world has come to an end, and uh, the Lord Jesus does need to come immediately, and uh, how with your boys, you swat them and say, now let's go on, and uh, we got to go play, and your, your granddaughter, you hurt her feelings, say, well, honey, I'm sorry, let's go. I'm not going anywhere with you. Jesus will come back before I go anywhere with you. So I, uh, I'm, I'm experiencing that now as well. But uh, as Scott said, uh, we are your seminary just a little ways from here, about 25 minutes. Love churches like this because we do have a heart for the Great Commission. Uh, we have a heart for sending uh, missionaries around the world. We have a heart uh, for church planting. Uh, and the Lord is blessing. We have now more than 3,000 students. We are the largest seminary uh, on the East Coast. Uh, about 600 in our college, uh, about 2,400 in our seminary, and, and we want to serve you. We, we uh, are, are here to be servants uh, to the church, and so one of the things we do, and Scott mentioned this, alluded to it, is we have, if you go to our website, uh, just Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, scbts.edu, you can take a free class. It's called a MOOC class, M-O-O-C. A lot of schools do it, even schools in the Triangle, massive open online course. And if you'd like to take a class in how to interpret the Bible, called hermeneutics, you can go to our website, hit that button that will take you into that site, and within a matter of moments, you can be watching over 40 lectures at your own pace, at your own leisure, that were actually uh, lectures that were delivered before about 120 students, walking you through how to observe the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to apply the Bible. And again, it is absolutely free. It won't cost you a penny. Uh, last uh, year, over 5,000 took the class uh, all throughout the nation, actually around the world. And uh, so it's just another way that we can serve you and partner with you uh, in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. So just know that we're there to help you and serve you in any way that we can and know that our heart resonates very, very much with a church uh, like this one and love your pastor and thankful for the vision that God has given him here uh, in this part of the Triangle area. He mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be in the shortest book of the Bible. So if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, if not, we're going to put it up on the screen. Third John, at the very end of the New Testament, a little bit shorter than its twin sister, Second John. It's a book that's often neglected, uh, a book that is often ignored, and yet I'm convinced that it is one of the most powerful books in the Bible when it comes to raising and answering the question, does your life bring praise to the name of Jesus. Now, what we're going to see in this short letter is the lives of three men are depicted, two positive, one negative. We're going to see very wonderful things said about a man named Gaius, wonderful things said about a man named Demetrius, but unfortunately, not so good things said about a man by the name of Diotrephes. And as we walk through these verses, I want all of us, myself included, to be a little bit introspective. And, and as we look at these verses, to ask the question, do I look like one of these three men? And if so, uh, what are the good things that I'm seeing? 
And what are the things that perhaps by God's spirit through the gospel uh, I need to change? So let me read the verses for you and then we'll go back and walk through them. Third John verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, some translations have dear friends. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, let me just point out as a matter of Bible interpretation, key words help us understand what are the main ideas that an author is trying to communicate. Uh, the idea of love in some form or another occurs six times in these 15 verses. The idea of truth also occurs five times in these verses. And the idea of testifying or bearing witness or testimony also occurs five times as well. So these are key ideas that are tying this book together, as is the idea of walking in the truth, as we just read there. So again, verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, dear friend, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well then to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, of course, the name of the Lord Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here the word uh, Gentiles, ethne, uh, has not the idea of people groups, but here it has the idea of those who don't know Christ, those who are, who are not believers. So they went out accepting nothing from unbelievers. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to, and uh, he puts them out of the church. Beloved, dear friend, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth. And we also add our testimony, a threefold witness. And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face, -face, literally mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Peace to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. This morning... Every one of us walked into this uh, time of worship with a very valuable possession. And this very valuable possession always goes with us wherever we go. But interestingly, it also goes where we don't go. Furthermore, what you think of this valued possession may not be what other people think of it. I'm talking about your, your reputation. The estimation and evaluation that others have of your character and your integrity, your standing as a person. Now, the fact of the matter is, people do watch you. 
And secondly, people also talk about you. Now, usually they do it behind your back, but people do talk about you, and they talk about you either in a good way or a bad way. People either have a positive evaluation and estimation of who you are, or it perhaps can go in a negative direction. But for sure, all of us in this room today have a reputation. It precedes you. It goes with you. It follows you all the days of your life. And in fact, it even may follow you after you're gone. Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of a previous century, the 19th century. He pastored uh, a Baptist church in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And Charles Spurgeon understood very well that the key to the public life was the private life. But he also understood that this watching world only sees your public life. And so in trying to help his own congregation understand the importance of a, of a healthy, godly reputation, answering the question in a positive way, does my life bring praise to Jesus? He said this, and listen very carefully, there's wisdom here. The eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously as soon as one goes astray. Be careful. Be careful of your private lives, and I believe your public lives will be sure to be right. But remember this. It is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. And so as we prepare to examine these verses this morning, let me raise a couple of questions for you to keep on the table as we think through them. Question number one, what do you think about yourself? What do you think about yourself when you pause and are self-reflective and introspective as you look at who the real you is on the inside? What do you think about yourself? Secondly, what do you think other people think about you? Now, I know for uh, in one sense you can't be sure, but if I were to talk this, uh, this day to uh, your best friend, to those people who work with you or live next door to you or, or go to school with you, if I were to talk... Uh, to your mate, to your parents, to your children, what would they say about you? But thirdly and most importantly, what do you believe this morning God thinks about you? The one who sees every action, the one, praise God, who knows and only he knows every thought, who is aware of every emotion that has taken place in your life, what does the Lord think about you? And what I want us to do is examine very quickly the lives of these three men and see what it is that we can learn in a positive way from a Gaius and a Demetrius and what we can learn by negative example from a man by the name of Diotrephes. Let me characterize their lives as we walk through. Number one, Gaius. I call him a man with the right balance. A man with the right balance. And the reason that he had the right balance is four things were true about this man's life. Number one, he was a man who lived spiritually. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. The elder, uh, the idea here is not a, I don't think, an official leader in the church, of course. The elders, the overseers, the uh, pastors, those were titles uh, for the leader of the church. But at this point in time, I think that, that John is using the word simply to mean an old man. Uh, most Bible teachers believe that he wrote this toward the end of the first century. 
Most believe that he wrote it as the last living apostle. All the other apostles had suffered death by martyrdom. Only John would actually die a natural death. And so by now, he's an old man. He's an aged man. He's like the the grandfather of the church. And so he simply says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The idea is I really love you. I truly love you. You have a very precious place in my heart and in my affection. And we're going to see there was a good reason. I like what Scott shared a moment ago about the three persons last week who trusted Christ. The, the odds are pretty overwhelming that someone alongside of the, uh, came alongside of them to, to lead them and to nourish them and nurture them in the gospel. The odds are that at least someone invited them here. Now, it's possible they just dropped in and, and God, by divine appointment, brought them to himself. But the fact is, we're going to see in just a moment that Gaius had most likely been led to Christ by the Apostle John. And so as a result of that, John looked at him as a spiritual child, a spiritual son, and he had a very special interest in his life. In fact, he was so interested in his life, he knew evidently some details about what was going on. And so in verse 2, he voices a very quick prayer for this man that he loves. Beloved, my dear friend, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Evidently, certainly likely, Gaius had been ill. Uh, Gaius was suffering physically, and so John prays a remarkable prayer, and here's his prayer. Dear God, please bless my dear friend, my beloved Gaius, physically, to exactly the same way that he is healthy spiritually. Bless him physically to the exact same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Now, I love to ask questions. That's what teachers do. What if I were to pray that prayer for you this morning and God were to answer it? Dear God, bless this man, bless this woman to the degree physically that they are healthy spiritually. Would that be a good thing? Are not such a good thing. Would it be the case that, oh, I'd be fit as a fiddle, uh, uh, Danny. I I would be uh, in great shape. Would it be that, no, you'd be in bed. Or could it even be possibly that you'd be nearly dead and we'd have to rush you very quickly to the ICU or the CCU unit because, unfortunately, you're not soul healthy. Gaius was a man whose soul was healthy. He was a man who lived spiritually. Now, how do we know that he lived spiritually? Well, what we see next helps us understand he walked truthfully. He walked in the truth. Look at what it says there in verse 3. John says, I rejoice greatly. When the brothers came, so folks had gone to Gaius' home, and we'll see in a moment, they had stayed there and then been sent on. They'd come back and given a, a missionary report, an evangelism report. So I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed, now I, I, this is underlined in my Bible, as indeed you are walking in the truth, indeed. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, says it twice, are walking in the truth. They're walking in the gospel. They're walking in the word. Now, that's an interesting concept in my way of thinking. You say, why? Well, I thought truth is something that you believe. John says, well, I'm not disagreeing with that, but here's the real bottom line, Danny. Truth is something you live. 
It's not just what you believe. Truth is what you live. There was an old uh, evangelist in North Carolina. He's in heaven now today. His name was Vance Havner. Dr. Havner was one of the most witty men, I believe, that ever walked the planet. And and he said when it comes to this particular issue, and I think he's spot on uh, to quote the Brits, uh, what we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. What we live, that's what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. And Gaius was a man who was living spiritually because he was walking in the truth. That then laid the foundation for the fact that in verses 5 and 6, we see him serving faithfully, living spiritually, walking truthfully, serving faithfully. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. They've testified to your love, where? Before the church. And so you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, here's what's going on. John the Apostle has sent out traveling missionaries and evangelists. In the first century, there were not many hotels and and motels, certainly nothing with five or four stars by them. And the ones that were available tended to be places that were dangerous and unfortunately not very good things happened there. So if you were traveling about, you would try to find first and foremost a family member. And if not, you would try to find a friend that might put you up and uh, give you lodging before you made your uh, journey and continued on in your journey. So what had happened was this. John has sent out these traveling missionaries. They have gone out. They're on their way to somewhere where the gospel has not been preached or heard, and they meet a man named Gaius. And immediately they find out, he's my brother. He's my brother in the Lord. And so what did Gaius do? Even though they were strangers... Even though he had not personally ever met them, he knew that they were family. So he invited them into his home. He gave them food to eat. He gave them a place to sleep. And most likely, he sent them on their way with both prayer and financial assistance. And so when they got back to give a missionary report, when they got back to report what had happened on their efforts, they said again and again and again, we met a man named Gaius. Uh, you, You know him, John. You led him to the Lord. And this Gaius, though though he wasn't doing really well, he'd he'd been sick. He'd been having some physical issues. But I tell you what, he opened up his home like it was our own. And he loved on us. He fed us. He gave us a place to sleep. He assisted us financially. And again and again and again, he heard these good reports about this man named Gaius. And so as a result of that, John basically says, if I might paraphrase what he says there in verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. He, in essence, just says, just keep on doing what you're doing. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Gaius, I wouldn't change a thing about how you are serving the Lord and ministering to these brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable statement. Again, plotting it to my own life. Could God this day say, hey, Danny Aiken, I like what I see. I wouldn't change a thing. He couldn't say that. I know he couldn't. There there are things in my life I know that need to be changed. There are things in my life that I know that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to act like a surgeon and cut out and cut away. But not Gaius. 
No, this man so exemplified the Lord Jesus. He walked so closely in fellowship with our Savior that John could say, Hey, my dear brother, my son in the faith, just keep on doing what you're doing because he was serving faithfully. But then fourthly, in verses 7 and 8, we also see that he was ministering generously. They, that is these traveling evangelists and missionaries, they have gone out for the sake of the name. The only reference to the Lord Jesus in this book, the name which is above every name, the name whereby we must be saved. They have gone out for the sake of the name. Now look at this. Accepting nothing from The Gentiles accepting nothing from those who are lost, those who are not Christian. The context, in that first century, there were traveling teachers. They were called peripatetic, not pathetic, peripatetic teachers. The word means to walk about. And so they would go about and they would teach and they would instruct and they would charge for what they would teach in terms of sharing their wisdom and their insight and so on. And in fact, it became very well known that some became very gifted and very adept at uh, raising money, uh, fleecing the flock, if you like. And so John wants to understand, uh, wants Gaius to understand, wants us to understand that when it comes to sharing the gospel, now hear me and hear me well, we must maintain absolute integrity. There must not even be a hint that we are doing something for wrong financial gain. Let me be very pointed. If you're here today and and you're not a Christian, we are honored that you're here. We're so grateful that you came. Maybe you're here uh, because you're investigating Christianity. Wonderful. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you came today uh, with a friend and and, uh, they've invited you to go to lunch afterwards. Wonderful. We're, We're glad you're here. Now, hear me and hear me well. The only thing we wanted from you today is your presence. And you've given us that. We don't want anything else. You say, you want my money? We don't want your money. We don't want your money. We have something we want to give you. It's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that makes people new and ushers in forgiveness of sin and transforms lives. And so you come to this church, understand up front, we are not in this to try to fleece you. We're not in this to get your money. God's people are responsible for financing God's work. And that's what he's very clearly articulating here in these verses. And so, since we're not going to ask uh, non-Christians to give us their money, how do we finance God's work? Verse 8, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may, and I love this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, let me make it personal again. Uh, I'm a Southern Baptist. I attend a Southern Baptist church. Our church gives money through what's called the cooperative program, and our church gives missions money to reach North America, and our church gives missions money to reach the the nations. And today, uh, Southern Baptists have almost 5,000 missionaries scattered around the world reaching out to the 16,000 
500 people groups that dot the planet, trying to make inroads into the 7,100 unreached people groups where people either have no access to the gospel or limited access to the gospel. This morning when I got up, I went to my computer, called up my email, and there was an email from Matt and Emily. They are graduates of Southeastern. They were in our 2 plus 2 missions training program, and they're out there among the nations sharing the gospel. And here's the wonderful truth. I'm there with them. I'm there with them. I'm there through my prayers. I'm there by the fact that we train them. But I am there because I give through a mechanism that helps finance their ability to be there and share the gospel. And so when we give and give generously to reach the nations with the gospel and we give generously to reach North America with the gospel and we give generously to reach the triangle with the gospel, the Bible says we become fellowshippers, fellow workers for the truth. Now, it would be really, really nice if 3 John ended right here. But it doesn't. And as wonderful as Gaius is, in verses 1 through 8, Diotrephes is his alter ego in verse 9 and also in verse 10. I've written in my notes a few statements that will summarize what we're about to see. And just if you take notes, you can jot them down or at least have them in your mind. Uh, Diotrephes, he loved himself and not others. Diotrephes... My way or the highway. Diotrephes, he had a me agenda, not a kingdom agenda. He was territorial, he was myopic, and he was defensive. Diotrephes could not see or appreciate the big picture. He was always looking out for himself and not others. This is the man that we encounter in verse 9 and in verse 10. Lest you think I've been unkind, hear the word of the Lord. I've written something John says to the church, most likely a lost letter. He's not referring to 2 John. I don't think he's referring to the first letter of John. So it's a letter that he wrote to uh, this church, and it got lost. In fact, we probably easily see in a moment how it did get lost. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, number one, who loves to put himself first. Prideful ambition. He loves to put himself first. Some of you have a translation that may say, who loves to have the preeminence. I think that's the best translation. You say, why? Because it picks up on the same word that occurs in Colossians chapter 1 where the Bible says, in all things, the Lord Jesus is to have the preeminence. In other words, Diotrephes wanted the place that only rightly belongs to Jesus. He had to be the main attraction. He had to be the focus of attention, Diotrephes, who loves, who likes to put himself first. Prideful ambition. Secondly, pompous arrogance, verse 9, the second part. He does not acknowledge our authority. He does not acknowledge our authority. Whose authority did he not acknowledge? The Apostle John. Now, let that sink in. Let that sink in. 
John has sent these traveling missionaries and evangelists who go with his authority. Diotrephes says, we don't need them, and we don't need John. John's an old man. John's a has-been. John needs to be put out to retirement and put out to pastor. In fact, let me make it very, very personal that I think will make the point. Imagine this morning that by some miracle, Pastor Scott had arranged for your preacher today not to be Danny Aiken, but the Apostle John. He was able, by a miracle from God, to arrange to have the Apostle John as your Bible teacher this morning. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think there might be a few more people here? Now, I, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Oh, no, Brother Danny, there'd be just as many people here for you as the Apostle John. Really? Like, you want to try to pass that off? No, 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 no. The fact of the matter is, you would not have been able to meet here today. You've been looking to either get the Dean Dome or the RBC Center. Actually, to be smart, you'd have prayed for good weather like we're going to have today, and you'd have tried to get one of the big football stadiums around here. And even then, I strongly suspect you would not be capable of handling all the people who would have showed up to hear the Apostle John, and yet Diotrephes would have not been there. And in fact, Diotrephes would have said, uh, Pastor Scott, uh, this is a bad call. We don't need him. He has nothing to offer. We do not accept his authority. My goodness. I don't even know how to put into words the arrogance of saying that. But it gets worse. And what you actually see here, my brothers and sisters, is a digression that moves from ambition to arrogance, now to accusations, and finally, godless activity. Look at verse 10. John says, so if I come, and the implication is I will, I will bring up what he is doing. Well, what's he doing? He's talking wicked nonsense. He is, some translations have it, gossiping maliciously. In other words, he was lying about John. He was misrepresenting the truth. To further his agenda, he did not care who got run over or knocked down. He didn't even care about the truth. That may be why John emphasized so strongly about Gaius. You are walking continually, constantly in the truth. But the truth did not matter to Diotrephes. If I have to lie to get my way, so be it. If I have to misrepresent the truth to further my agenda, then so be it. And how far would he go? Look at the last phrase of verse 10. Not content with that, that is talking this wicked nonsense, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Gaius lets them into his house. He won't let them in his house. It's worse than that. He even puts those who want to out of the church. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He stops those who wants to. He puts them out of the church. Now, it's interesting. We don't know who Diotrephes was. Was he the pastor? We don't know. Was he a deacon? We don't know. Was he a powerful layman? We don't know. We do know he was powerful. We do know he was influential. And we also know this, he was a cancer to the Great Commission. He was a disease that eventually would reduce this church to absolute and total ineffectiveness if he was allowed to continue his ways. So as wonderful as Gaius was, Diotrephes is exactly 
the opposite. But now that brings us to our third example. And do you see the, the, what we call the rhetorical strategy that John uses? He sandwiches, if you like, the bad guy in the middle with two really great guys on the outside. First, Gaius, now Demetrius. And if Gaius was a man with the right balance, Diotrephes is a man with a harmful agenda. Demetrius is a man with a good testimony. Verse 11, beloved, dear friend, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. That word imitate is an imperative, word of command. It's in the present tense, continuous action. We get our word mimic from it. So, beloved, do not continually mimic, mimic what is evil, but rather continually mimic, imitate what is good. Why? Well, here's just a very basic, simple, biblical principle. Whoever does good is from God. In other words, whoever has a life characterized by the goodness and the transforming power of the gospel, they give evidence that they belong to God. On the other hand, whoever has a life that is characterized by evil has not seen God. Sometimes people ask me, uh, Danny, do you think uh, Diotrephes was saved? And of course, the ultimate answer is, I don't know. But I do suspect that John doubted it. I do suspect that John doubted it. And I think that's why he includes that verse there. The one who's continually doing good gives evidence that their lives have been changed by the transforming power of the gospel. But those who continually do evil, i.e., look at diatrophies, they give evidence that they have not seen God. Now, why does he give us a command to imitate and mimic what is good and not what is evil? Well, I think there's several reasons, but I think this one is is at the top of the list. John recognized that we all imitate and mimic somebody. We all imitate and mimic somebody. We all have heroes. We all have people that we we look up to. As a little boy growing up, I loved and admired my granddaddy. He died when I was only uh, 14 years old. He only had an eighth grade education. He was a simple farmer in Douglasville, Georgia. Even for a time, uh, he served as the janitor of our church. But he's one of my heroes. I'm here this morning because of the influence of Charlie Galloway on my life. I admired and looked up to my granddaddy. So the question for all of us this morning, at least one, is who do you mimic? Who do you imitate? Who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? But now here's a second question, very important. Please, please hear this one. People who look up to you, who admire you, people who in their eyes, you are their hero, what are you showing them? What are they seeing? Dad, your sons most likely look to you as a hero. What are they seeing? If they mimic you, if they imitate you, good thing, bad thing. Moms with precious daughters, same thing. They watch you like a hawk, little eagle eyes, What are they seeing? Hey, older brother, older sister that got younger siblings that just think you hung the moon. Just think you're the greatest thing. They they want to be so much like you. What are they seeing? 
You see, we all mimic and imitate somebody, and we all have somebody or somebodies that are trying to mimic and imitate us. Scott mentioned a moment ago that we have four sons. He also mentioned that by God's amazing, amazing kindness and grace, they're all in ministry today. One of the things I tried intentionally to do as they were growing up was to point them to men in our churches and men that I knew, and I would say to my boys, Hey, Nate, John, Paul, Tim, I hope you grow up to love your wife like that man loves his wife. I hope you grow up to be a dad like that man is a dad. I hope you grow up to love the Bible like that man loves the Bible. I hope you grow up to be like that man in the way that he loves the gospel and loves lost people. I hope you grow up to be like that man who loves and serves so graciously and so humbly his church. I was always looking for role models in addition to myself for my children. Would it be guys in particular, men, if I were a member of this church and my boys were still little, could I point my sons to you? And with great confidence say, hey guys, watch him carefully and imitate and mimic him. And if you do, your life will bring great praise to the name of Jesus. There was a man that uh, John could do that. Gaius, yes. And now Demetrius. Look at it and we close. Verse 12. Demetrius had received a good testimony and John Following the Hebrew practice of everything being confirmed by two or three witnesses, you find that principle in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 19. He says he's got a threefold witness. Number one, he has a good testimony from everyone. What a remarkable statement. Number two, he has a good testimony from the truth itself. And number three, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony, it is true. I think the most amazing statement here is that first one where he says he has received a good testimony from everyone. From everyone. Now, let's make sure we know what that means. Is he saying that everyone that knew Demetrius loved and worshipped his Lord Jesus? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying that everyone who knew Demetrius trusted in God's word and had a Christian worldview like Demetrius? No, I don't think he's saying that either. But what he is saying is this man, Demetrius, is the kind of guy that you'd been fine if he was your next door neighbor. This is the kind of man that you would be delighted to have as your co-worker. This is the kind of man that any accusation, it just would not stick. He had such integrity. He lived with such honesty. He was a man that you could not explain by natural means. Whether I agreed and followed and believed in the God that he claimed to follow, believe in, and worship, I could not question nor deny the qualitative difference in his life. And you know, we're now back to what Spurgeon said, aren't we? The eagle-eyed world acts like a watchdog, a policeman, watching you carefully, eyeballing you. And the fact of the matter is, if what they see doesn't match up with the gospel, then we become a hindrance to their coming to Christ rather than an aid. But when they see the difference that Jesus makes in us, sinners though we are, fallible though we are, fallen though we are, but they see something different in the way we act, in the way we speak, in the way that we serve and care for one another.
Then the fragrance of the gospel begins to spread and move out. And promises come from God's word. Lives will be changed. Because they see the authenticity of a transformed life made possible by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I just ask you one more time. People are watching you. There are people who look up to you. What do they see when they look at you? Does your life bring praise to the name of Jesus? Can we pray together? Father, this is a very short, neglected book, but it convicts me every time I look into it. And Lord, I do not want to be like Diotrephes. And yet I recognize that I am more than capable of being like him, certainly with blind spots, doing things that I don't see, justifying what I'm convinced has to be the right agenda. After all, it's my agenda. It's my perspective. Lord, I don't want to be like that. Rather, I want to be a man like uh, Gaius. What a beautiful balance to his Christian life. I want to be a man like Demetrius, whose reputation was so stellar, even the Gentiles, even unbelievers could not question that this man was different. There was something about his life that stood out. He was different. And Lord, we know this morning from your word that the difference was the gospel of Jesus Christ made real in his life. And Lord, what you did in the life of a man named Gaius and what you did in the life of a man named Demetrius, you can and will do in any of our lives if we will repent of our sin and put our faith and trust completely and totally in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your Bible teaches us If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. What a wonderful promise, Lord. It is ours for the taking. May there be many this day that claim it for themselves. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.